Welcome to our inaugural Science Before the Storm podcast. Through the NSF-funded virtual organization, PREPARE, we're working to create a research roadmap for the next pandemic. I'm Erin Raymond, and I'm here with my co-host, Srini Venkatramanan, and we are joined by Madhav Madate, the lead from PREPARE. We have some really special guests with us today from NSF, which is the National Science Foundation, um, Margaret Martinosi and Erwin Gianchandani. So, Margaret, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you do for NSF. Sure, thanks. My name is Margaret Martinosi, and I lead the Computer and Information Science and Engineering, or SIES, directorate at NSF. Uh, it's a roughly billion-dollar directorate that has the mission to fund research, education, and cyber infrastructure in the broad set of topic areas around computer and information science and engineering. And I do so uh, as a quote-unquote rotator out of the research community. I hold a faculty position at Princeton University where I've been on the computer science faculty uh, since 1994. Thanks. All right, Erwin. Sure. Thanks very much for having me as well. So I'm Erwin Ganchanani. Uh, for the last six years or so, I've served as the deputy for the same directorate that Margaret just referenced, the Computer Science, Computer and Information Science and Engineering Directorate at NSF. Uh, I have been at the foundation for eight and a half years. My background, actually, interestingly enough, is in computational systems biology, so trying to better understand disease mechanisms, as it turns out. Uh, and at the moment, I'm also in the process of transitioning to a different role as a senior advisor for the foundation focused on translation, innovation, and partnerships. So that's great. Uh, so maybe before we dive deeper into COVID and prepare, so perhaps we can start with what NSF size does and how did the pandemic impact you all there and in terms of your priorities and your operations? And at one point, did uh, NSF realize that this pandemic is something that they would want to focus on and direct resources towards? Uh, so I can start. So as I mentioned, uh, SIS has this mission to uphold US leadership in this broad set of computer and information science and engineering topic areas. And we do so by funding the community and by encouraging career pathways that, that help uh, bring SIS work to societal and economic impact. Um, I actually started at NSF in February, 2020. Uh, in the building, there were conversations about COVID at that time, uh, but we were still sort of in a normal work posture. Um, and you can imagine that by early March, uh, that posture was starting to change. And by mid-March, we had shifted to a telework uh, mode. Um, already, while uh, we were still in the building before we sort of had a pandemic declared and shifted to telework, we had already started conversations. So for example, the early conversations about the CI Fellows Emergency Postdoc Program happened already in early March. Um, our funding of the computational epidemiology expedition in computing um, that Madhav leads uh, is an example of something that was sort of extraordinarily timely despite the fact that it had gone through a very long and thorough merit review process leading up to that moment. Um, of announcing it in mid-March. Um, and then in addition, uh, there were also conversations in March about things like flexibilities on uh, research experiences for undergraduates or REU programs to ensure that undergraduates whose internships had been in impacted by the pandemic um, could find new summer opportunities. 
and a set of what are called RAPIDS awards, uh, which are small, relatively short duration awards designed to be timely responses to a particular issue, in this case, COVID-19. Um, and I think one of the things that we're excited about with PREPARE is this chance to take on um, this sort of constellation of small awards and coordinate uh, them in a way that turns into something bigger and with clear impact. Another thing that happened in March was the COVID-19 HPC Consortium, uh, which our colleagues in SIZE's Office of Advanced Cyber Infrastructure, OAC, um, helped to co-found, uh, and which has over the past 14 months really been a leader in ensuring broad access to the kinds of cyber infrastructure resources that have helped advance our understanding of uh, COVID-19, the pandemic overall, the virus and so forth. Uh, with some of that work supported through the consortium, uh, turning into award-winning research, turning into scientific data sets that are internationally accessible for other researchers to make use of. Um, and we're really proud of the fact that NSF was not just a co-founder, but was also actually the single largest provider of resources into that consortium. So that's kind of all that happened fairly quickly. Um, that was March, April. Uh, and then what happened after that longer term was a discussion of sort of what are the new programs, what are the new research needs and research opportunities around this? Um, and those are sort of coming out now and, and we're looking forward to engaging the community more broadly. Wow, that was a heck of a first couple months for you at work. I mean, it's usually a big transition when you start a new job, but wowie, you had, uh, I mean, transition on every possible front, I think. I think Margaret only lived in her uh, apartment in Alexandria for a few weeks before the world really upended, right? It was it was just amazing. Um, maybe, maybe I'll add just a little bit, uh, Aaron, as well, about the sort of operational aspects of the foundation, right? So we have a workforce of about 2,000 people, all told, um, scientific staff, as well as administrative professionals, as well as the leadership of the foundation across the board. And I think we prided ourselves as an organization as being one that was pretty telework ready. And we had folks who would telework one day a week, two days a week at a time. Uh, and it was sort of commonplace, but, but by and large, we saw each other in the hallways and, and so forth. Um, and as Margaret said, you know, toward the second half of February, especially, and then that first week of March, I think was very memorable for many of us. That's when we started to really hear more and more conversation about COVID-19. And like a lot of organizations, right, um, in the government and in academia and the private sector, we started to think about, okay, how do we as an organization respond to this and protect our workforce, right? That was really front and center, protecting our workforce. But interestingly enough, when we thought about protecting our workforce, it was also protecting the broader scientific community as well. You know, we as an organization, um, the building for the National Science Foundation in Alexandria, Virginia hosts thousands of people from the research community every year, uh, potentially hundreds of people every day, right, as reviewers come into the building to serve as experts to provide input on the proposals that we receive to be able to help make decisions, help inform our program officers on the decisions that we make about which projects to fund and which ones we cannot fund. And so 
that's a lot of people who get onto airplanes, get onto trains to come to the foundation on a day in day out basis. And it's so critical to being able to help inform the decisions that we make and allow us to be able to execute on our mission. And so it was the first week of March. Uh, I still remember it pretty vividly where we started to have a, a, a deep dive conversation among some members of the leadership team about how do we potentially start to think about moving from in-person panels to virtual panels, right? And that then started the open the floodgates, if you will, to start the conversations about moving from being in-person to being virtual as an organization. And that involved developing guidance, not just for our own staff internally within the organization, but also developing guidance to prospective panelists and reviewers who were set to get onto airplanes and come to NSF. Um, to provide guidance to prospective awardees as well, um, and also to our active awardees in terms of how they should think about uh, their own execution of their projects and what flexibilities they might need to consider as they could no longer go into the lab or they could no longer organize and run a workshop in person that might have been scheduled for the purposes of furthering the progress of science. Uh, and so, you know, really over the course of a weekend, a team of folks here at the foundation drafted a set of guidance for each of our various stakeholders and uh, put in place sort of a, a process flows where we would develop plans sort of two weeks at a time initially, uh, not sure exactly how long this pandemic would be with us. Uh, and then as it became clear over time that we were in it for the long haul, we then broadened that envelope and that time horizon to try to provide some continuity and calibrate expectations for everybody involved. I think one of the things that uh, I, say, I, I believe we're really fortunate um, within the foundation, uh, we were already starting the process of migrating to Zoom uh, as an agency, and that has truly been a lifesaver. Our um, IT folks were able to get us onto Zoom really overnight just as we were migrating to a virtual environment. Uh, and it worked out really seamlessly for many of our staff, uh, as well as for the reviewers who were now joining in virtually from all over the, uh, all over the country. Um, the other thing that I would say that really struck us over this period was the resilience of our workforce, right? Folks are really dedicated, really committed to the mission of the foundation. And trying to do everything that they could to be able to execute on that mission uh, in spite of the circumstances that were presenting all around us. Uh, and so you know, I think we're really proud of all of the people that we work alongside at the agency and really the research community too, which has been right there with us resilient through every step of the way. And then finally, and we can maybe talk about this in more depth too, I think it's become very, very clear just how disproportionately this pandemic has touched individuals within the foundation, our workforce, as well as members of the research community. You know, folks with young kids, for example, folks with uh, elderly parents and, and grandparents whom they have to care for. And so trying to develop flexibilities for our staff in terms of their day-to-day -day so that, uh, you know, we recognize now folks don't necessarily work an eight to five schedule or a seven to three schedule, right? It can be all over the map and we have to be understanding and accommodating. Those are some of the things that we've also thought through as, the, as we've gone further and further into the pandemic. Wow, the, just the thought of you all spending that weekend, mapping that out, 
That is mind blowing. I mean, it was hard for our organization and we didn't have external people coming in. We didn't have a bunch of visitors that we had to deal with, review panels, all of that. Wow, there is a serious like research project. Someone's thesis is in that room from that weekend, right? I can't, wow. I'm just thinking, you know, two things. One is, I must say that none of our programs were impacted. So all the things you folks did were done where genuinely I did not see any problem, uh, you know, that would potentially arise from NSF moving virtually. And as Erin rightly said, perhaps maybe a research project to just study how NSF did this, because it's a it's a study of how virtual organizations can be formed in the first place, maybe from from being a physical organization. It's a wonderful idea. Yeah, I was about to say that, like the virtual organization that you're going to talk about, you basically implemented a virtual organization. And the, the notion that you talked about that you were thinking about it two weeks at a time while dealing with like multi-year projects and making it as seamless for them, as well as the people who are reviewing them and all the support staff, that's, that's an incredible... Uh, task by itself and being able to transition towards things that are required to support pandemic response rather than just all the existing science, cool science that people have been doing, pivoting towards more uh, pertinent and uh, urgent questions. I think that should have taken a lot of uh, effort and yeah, uh, thank you so much for uh, giving us some view of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Margaret, you talked a little bit about the rapid program. Um, so I don't know, maybe you can talk a little bit more about the rapids in general. I'm not sure that the general public knows about that. Even me working within a research institute for five years, I had never heard of the rapid program. Is it something that is just in place for NSF to use for events like this? When was the last time a rapid program was put in place? Uh, so, uh, so rapids are uh, an NSF mechanism that has existed for decades, and it has been employed at different moments uh, where some sort of timely research response is warranted. Uh, 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 an analogous uh, moment in the past was around Ebola, and and actually there were early conversations as we sort of uh, decided on NSF's response around rapids, where. Uh, the Ebola proposal incoming count was sort of used as a potential comparator. Um, however, we didn't really know what would happen when we issued a, a DCL calling for rapids around COVID-19 um, because it's a fairly different situation uh, in terms of the way it was impacting everyone around us to a degree where um, some previous incidents might have felt a little more distant in time and space and so forth. So um, when we issued the DCL sort of inviting these COVID-19 rapids, um, it was not knowing what the response would be. And the response was really quite extraordinary. Um, so we received CARES Act funding uh, to support $75 million worth of RAPIDS, and we were asked to focus our CARES Act funding on the RAPIDS mechanism. Um, in the end, NSF as a whole funded 526 awards, uh, RAPIDS awards um, through that CARES Act funding, and actually close to double that in terms of all the COVID-19 um, response that, that came out of that first influx. 
uh, for size, our CARES Act um, apportionment was 15 million. And uh, we ended up supporting 172 rapids out of that. Uh, and then in addition, found additional funding to support uh, additional rapids, uh, but also things like the Prepare Virtual Organization. To me, um, I, I think about Prepare as being this chance to take many individualized efforts and help keep them aligned uh, so that the overall impact, the overall um, sort of vision behind that work can be, can be more coordinated, can be more significant because of the alignment, because of the sense of community. You go further when you uh, go as a community, and I think PREPARE is going to help the size community do that. So um, as excited as we were about the CARES Act funding and the chance to sort of fund these rapids and go forward with the individualized aspects, uh, we're even more excited about the thought of bringing together that community, bringing together a virtual organization to help uh, sort of shape the future of studies in this topic area and to ensure broad impact across them. And that I think is one of the, the strengths without a doubt of NSF is that, that focus on the bigger picture, always with the bigger picture in mind, always with uh, the next thing in mind, with the way that the entire country can be, the entire world can be positively affected by these little pieces of research um, by grouping them all together and making sure that they live on. And, and also sort of seeing that, you know, even within a particular topic area like size, there's a, a sort of extraordinary diversity of topics that are possible, right? So we have some rapids that are about communication, about information, um, misinformation, disinformation around COVID-19. We have others that are studying networking traffic uh, because we have this extraordinary and unprecedented shift to a virtual world. How is that affecting networking traffic um, around US campuses and globally? So uh, sort of extraordinary differences in kind of topical area backgrounds, extraordinary opportunities to take an all of size and all of STEM look at a particular challenge that we're facing and to move us forward together as a community. Yeah, I even saw one rapid topic that I think was on having an election during a pandemic, um, because that was an extraordinary opportunity to to explore something who had ever thought of that, that that would be a thing. But there we are. I, I just wanted to say that I, I think uh, one of the silver linings of the challenges that we've all faced as a society over the past 14 months um, would be if we actually were able to study it at a level of detail that let us learn, let us capture that data so that we could learn from it actually, not just in real time, but over time as well, and be ready differently for, for future challenges of this type. Yeah, uh, even if uh, someone listens to the word rapids, like uh, the image that comes to mind is this flurry of water, like there's a rapid uh, down the stream. And so building uh, infrastructure or connecting them to the larger rivers and reservoirs so that they're not isolated things, but they all can come together so that the next time you're building something, you have some institutional memory or even uh, trying to understand how these different pieces fit together. I think, uh, in fact, like I, you mentioned, a lot of these mechanisms were in place. The mechanisms and programs were in place and we had to figure out like how we do it for COVID. And uh, so uh, in some sense, 
Uh, from there, what were the new programs and initiatives that uh, uh, folks at uh, NSF had to come up with or uh, create to address the pandemic? Uh, maybe you can talk some more about that. As I as I mentioned, the the notion of an emergency post-act program was was something that uh, was in discussion fairly early on in March. And that was informed by a previous size post-act program uh, during the 2008 economic downturn and the aftermath of that. Uh, there was a sense that in times of job market disruption, a post-act program could help. And if you think about it from the community perspective, um, if the community has invested time and resources in educating people through years of PhD training, it would be a shame to quote unquote lose them um, because of a un, unhelpful job market at the moment they graduate, right? And so the idea of the CI Fellows Postdoc Program is to try to create a buffer to capture that talent and make sure we don't lose that talent um, because of sort of fluctuations in a job market year by year. And so uh, we stood up CI Fellows 2020 in what uh, was it's just sort of an extraordinarily quick turnaround time. Um, it's one of the things that I am most proud of uh, for our community and for the internal folks at SIZE and across NSF who worked to shape the policy decisions, who worked to get the solicitation, the, the proposal reviewed. You know, some of the people involved in that process of making CI Fellows 2020 happen were themselves working through having COVID, recovering from COVID while they did key steps of this. It was an extraordinary uh, response and one that I will never forget. Um, and, and so now there's 59 people who have postdocs because of that. Erwin? Wow. Margaret, I just wanted to interject there. So, you know, you talk about the extraordinary response. Let's just note that we went from concept to reality in terms of the announcement. So we went from having the initial conversations and discussion about maybe we need something like that emergency postdoc program from uh, 2008, 2009 timeframe. We started those conversations. I, I still remember, Margaret, I think we exchanged messages about that in the middle of March, right? right? Right as we were transitioning out of the NSF building. So we went from that in the middle of March to having an announcement on the street for perspective Computing Innovation Fellows in early to mid-May, two months. So for folks who think that government is slow or bureaucratic, this is a case study in how you can get things done, right? And, and as Margaret said, a lot of people working behind the scenes to pull something like this off. And, and another, another quick response with, I think, strong long-term benefits is the COVID-19 HBC Consortium. So again, this came out of conversations literally over a week or a weekend in March, the notion that we needed to be able to stand up resources so that any scientist in America with questions, important questions, um, could study aspects of the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself or about sort of contact tracing and sort of societal impacts as a whole um, at scale. And this is a strong partnership that led to an interagency response, NSF, other federal agencies, um, but also uh, a public-private partnership with IBM and other um, entities. And over time, it became an international partnership with close to four dozen partners providing resources. Um, what that 
uh, sort of demonstrated for all. And, and as I said, NSF was the largest sort of single um, provider of resources into that consortium, which we're proud of. When you look longer term, um, you think, well, how can we bottle up that magic and do it again when we need to? And from that came the notion of a national strategic computing reserve, um, similar to how we have national strategic reserves for other key resources. Um, and so we issued, uh, the government issued an RFI, a request for information um, late in 2020, asking the community to weigh in on the notion of a national strategic computing reserve. And we're now sort of sorting through the responses we received uh, to plot a way forward on that. But that's an example of quick, nimble response, helpful resources to broaden um, who can help uh, sort of react to COVID-19 and its impacts, and then a long-term trajectory um, that says, let's not lose what we learned from this experience and let's carry it forward. Which is actually a beautiful segue to the PREPARE project. So, Erwin, I'm guessing that um, in the same way that you talked about how these other programs came about after a discussion a couple weeks later, there's the call, like, ready to go. Uh, and the reason that we are here today in this group is because of just such a call, uh, such a request for a proposal for the PREPARE project. Of course, you all didn't call it the PREPARE project. You called it a research roadmap for the next pandemic. So um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I can get us started. Uh, so, you know, I think one of the things that we have often found when it comes to figuring out what areas that we ought to be investing in as an agency or as a research community, you know, NSF is a very bottom up driven organization. We pride ourselves on that, right? We really take uh, guidance from the research community in some sense about what are the questions that folks feel like we should be tackling today? What are the, the areas of uh, potential synergy or gaps in terms of what we are funding versus what we could be funding? Um, and so I think in that way, size has, you know, our directorate at NSF has really benefited over the years from being able to tap into the research community to run workshops and pull together uh, visioning activities and road mapping documents that really articulate the sound intellectual agenda that we ought to be pursuing as an agency, as a community, um, as really um, a nexus of uh, government, academia, and even the private sector and local communities along the way as well. Uh, you know, we, for example, I think many folks know about the Computing Community Consortium, the CCC, which is funded by NSF in part to be able to do some of this sort of visioning. And so as we were watching the rapid projects that we were funding, and as we were watching the sort of tremendous appetite on the part of the scientific community, the size community, to want to engage and want to help find solutions to this current pandemic and overcome SARS-CoV-2 and, and the COVID-19 disease. Um, you know, it, it, it was it was a once in a generation, if not once in a century type of moment, I think, for the scientific enterprise with such a galvanization around this particular topic, this particular issue. And so we felt, and, and I think Maud have said it a little while ago as well, you know, there's, there's not just 
the science of what we were trying to enable in terms of everything from how you understand host-to-host transmission uh, and virus emergence to trying to really be able to take stock of modeling the host-virus interactions or modeling the spread of the virus across geographic spaces uh, to what are the steps that one can take to mitigate uh, that spread and potentially affect behavioral change as well. So there's not just the science around pandemics themselves, but also, as Madhav said earlier, the science of what it is that we were doing as a society for this particular pandemic as well, right? And so I think in that sort of context, uh, it was actually, this is an example of a bottom-up effort, right? So James Joshi, one of our program officers in size, Nina Amla, another program officer in size, they were the ones who said, hey, given all of the investment that we're making in cybersecurity, in modeling and simulation and AI, um, in misinformation, disinformation, as Margaret said earlier, could we potentially create a vehicle that would allow all of the rapid PIs whom we funded to plug in together and then also have those conversations to really understand what's the research agenda for the size community and how does that research agenda align itself with our colleagues in the social and behavioral sciences, our colleagues in the biological sciences and so forth, so that we can create a broader fabric of of really um, an intellectual agenda that would not only help us overcome this pandemic, but really be much more prepared for and potentially uh, prevent the next pandemic from coming about, right? And so that's really what we saw as uh, an opportunity moment, if you will, for the size community. And uh, as you noted, uh, given the computational epidemiology expeditions project that we had funded, um, you know, it, it was uh, it was perfect timing in some sense. Uh, many years in the in the making, but perfect timing in, in some sense. Given that, uh, we thought that we would see if if Madhav and, and and you folks would be interested in engaging in this way. And I think really gratified already to see some of the initial conversations that have happened, how the community has has um, come together around this virtual organization and is really trying to think uh, not just a few months, not just a year, but many years ahead in terms of what's the set of research questions that we ought to be tackling. Yeah, so uh, Prepare itself actually uh, tries to bring together a lot of these rapids and build these uh, uh, research roadmaps and try to understand what what is missing what is what is to be connected among the things that are already existing and how does it fit into this broader mission of nsf like of all the other projects and how do you think of uh, something like prepares prepare virtual organization fitting into this larger scope and maybe you can talk a bit more about what kind of results or uh, uh, concrete results that you would expect to see from uh, a virtual organization of this sort Sure. So I think we've, we've mentioned this notion of road mapping, of coordination that lets uh, the field move further and faster than individuals might do on their own. Um, and, and it coordinates well with other efforts that are also underway. So, for example, in February and March of this year, um, we had four community workshops in the topic area of predictive intelligence for pandemic prevention. And so that's a fairly broad topic area that takes an almost all of NSF, almost all of science view of what it means uh, to manage 
and to anticipate and prevent pandemics at scale. Uh, and that's a really uh, interesting opportunity. Uh, I think for NSF as a whole, if you think about it, there are other science agencies that have um, particular focused missions. NSF um, covers the sciences broadly. And so that lets NSF think about something like pandemic prevention in a very broad way, looking at, at sort of the, the, the viral aspects of things uh, from a biology lens, uh, looking at how AI can bring into, can bring expertise, bring new viewpoints into it, um, understanding the social behavioral and economic aspects of it as well. So I think one of the things that we see is prepare being a community of people who are engaged on the, the size aspects of this topic space and then feeding into this broader conversation and, and hopefully future programs that look at the all of science aspect as well as size's role within that. I think Margaret covered it really nicely. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to be on the bleeding edge, right? From a scientific and intellectual standpoint. And I think that in many ways, PREPARE helps us be able to do that in this particular context, in this particular space, um, bringing together both sort of the um, science and technology questions and the broad societal impact that we want to have as well. I just wanted to add that I think this project really was very timely and just as one indication of how important it was viewed. Uh, we have some outstanding folks in our steering committee. Uh, it's very hard to imagine people of, uh, you know, of that repute to be able to serve on a committee like this. And it, it what it tell, tells us is I think they all feel that this is this is an important project and they would like to guide it. And that's essentially why they are there. Uh, we have had just one meeting with them, but we keep talking to them in, in, in smaller groups. Um, and it's nothing but a, a amazing level of uh, interest that they have shown in the project thus far. So Margaret, you, you kind of mentioned the PIP workshops, the other NSF workshops. Obviously, PREPARE is not the a lone ranger out here, right? I know NSF in a lot of different contexts has a lot of different things going on uh, to support this research into pandemic resilience and preparedness. Uh, are there other activities currently going on, activities that you have planned for the future to help in this area? Either Erwin or Margaret. Um, so I, I think you can view uh, PIP as sort of the workshops is a signal that this is an area of um, incredible interest for the foundation, um, partly because of its importance, just given our current context of where we are in this pandemic, but also because it can be a driver for important um, scientific advances across a range of areas, right? So I think what we learn through pandemic prevention and the PIP workshops um, can also help inform different types of artificial intelligence research going forward, different types of cyber infrastructure uh, activities going forward, different types of networking activities going forward, and so on and so forth. So there's this uh, bi-directional flow that what we know from size topic areas overall can feed pandemic prevention as a topic area. And likewise, thinking about things in terms of a particular specific context like pandemic prevention can help inform research across the broad size topic areas. Yeah, and, and maybe I'll just add to what Margaret said and, and offer a couple of concrete examples um, building on that. So, you know, one is um, the notion of access to data sets. 
uh, and in particular access to data sets in a secure manner that at the same time preserves any privacy characteristics associated with those data sets, right? So this is, this is a challenge that I think has become uh, has really come front and center in the context of COVID-19. Everything from being able to understand uh, how many positive tests do you have to where they're located to understanding more recently the distribution of vaccination uh, of uh, vaccines and, and, and the vaccination flow that needs to happen across the country, right? All of that type of data has um, certain sort of privacy characteristics associated with it. And we need to be cognizant of that. But at the same time, we need to find ways in which we can get those data into the hands of researchers to really be able to work with those, help refine some of the AI techniques that Margaret referenced, uh, really build not just advances in computation and communication capabilities, uh, but also advances in terms of the impacts that emanate from that from those as well. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, for instance, planning a workshop uh, in just a few weeks here uh, that seeks to try to bring together uh, folks at federal agencies across the gamut, so HHS, the Census Bureau, uh, Department of Transportation, and so forth, can we bring together some of the data stewards, chief data officers, if you will, from across the federal government, who know that they have data sets that could be relevant to the research community, but sometimes are hamstrung by regulations and policies that put a spotlight on preserving privacy associated with those data, right? So can we bring those stakeholders potentially together with uh, uh, colleagues from the research community, security and privacy researchers who develop techniques specifically to enhance the security and privacy features associated with data sets while still making them available, right? And there are various different types of approaches from differential privacy to creating secure data enclaves and all kinds of other mechanisms that would allow folks to be able to have access to those data sets. And so uh, our goal with this workshop in a, in a broad sense, is to be able to bring together the CDOs, if you will, with researchers to be able to better enumerate some of the challenges that CDOs face and also potentially identify uh, different types of technical approaches that can be taken to overcoming those challenges while still keeping within the realm of any applicable laws and regulations and, and policies and so forth, right? And while the context there is broader than simply the focus on COVID-19 and pandemic-related research, it is nonetheless, I think, um, uh, uh, something that's very germane to that discussion because so much of the data over the last year that we've been talking about has come out of HHS and the CDC and so forth and really been focused around the pandemic. So I think that that's a really poignant example of how, as you said, there are current and other activities that SIS and NSF are undertaking that have a broader footprint, but that align with some of the work that we're thinking about around COVID-19 as well. And if you can solve that data problem, I think world peace is next. I feel that is such a big problem. <laughs> it is a big problem, um, but we view it as infrastructure for the community. And so we have to go after it. We have to solve it. And we also have ideas about researcher and residents or other opportunities where we can sort of bring the community potentially into agencies to help help them sort of bring their research expertise into these problems in a more immediate way. 
Right. And, and, and what better agency to do that than NSF, which is a charter really across all sciences and engineering, right? And uh, I think uh, pandemic is a really interesting example of social good. So to the extent people want to open their data sets, you can't find a, a more compelling example easily because it's it affects everyone. It has at its heart a, a sense of social good at the end of the day and health uh, makes it easy to have such conversations. So it's a great idea. Yeah, in fact, uh, I think uh, uh, in this pandemic, what has been really highlighted in epidemic forecasting or even generally pandemic response, the, the notion of data and computing being central to even understanding what's happening, let alone predicting or even trying to un understand what to do. Uh, I think that's come, uh, like I mean, it's, it's almost... Uh, fast track the domain, I would say, uh, and uh, NSF instead of just funding researchers saying that go and do this cool problem, understands the real pain points of researchers saying that like they, they either don't have access to data or they have a huge data set and they don't have access to computing, and uh, knowing what actually they need to do the science that the community or the society needs is something that I think NSF has been really good at identifying and also setting up these infrastructures which. In, in the future, like right now, the pandemic response is front and center in all of our minds. But the computing and the data problems that we solve, uh, in some sense, will pay way for other things like disasters. Or other as, other aspects would share infrastructures. And I think that's what you also mentioned in terms of how the other programs inside NSF and SAIS uh, kind of leverage and interact with the kind of uh, things that we do under this kind of a platform. So maybe uh, thinking towards the future, uh, I mean, right now, I think everyone is thinking about when this pandemic's over and when everyone's vaccinated and can go back to go go back to our offices, which we don't remember now. <laughs> so uh, maybe uh, can can you think about like what are the potential new emerging uh, things that maybe uh, NSF did not get a chance to fully explore during the pandemic, but would like to build a capability for? And in general, what does NSF size business as usual look like uh, after? The pandemic is over. So when I think about um, key themes for our field going forward, I, I tend to frame them in terms of three organizational umbrellas. Um, and they're not intended to be kind of narrow pathways through the field, but they are intended to be organizational umbrellas under which most size researchers will find themselves one, two, or three times. And they are um, size in a post-Moore world. So what's happening as a result of the end of Moore's law and the underlying technology changes there. So that's one. The transcendence of artificial intelligence is two, the sort of shift in roles from AI as a subtopic area to AI sort of infusing so many aspects of science. And three is size as a truly socio-technical field and embracing that socio-technical aspect. And when you think about those three themes, you can come up uh, with many different uh, sort of research topic areas that fit underneath them. And many of those are, are motivated by our sort of emergence out of this pandemic and looking forward, right? So a lot of our understanding of the pandemic and the SARS-CoV-2 virus has come from having really uh, advanced computing infrastructure on which to operate. And that has to do with understanding the post-war technology trends well. Uh, the transcendence of AI, clearly hugely important in issues of pandemic uh, prediction and prevention. And then size as a socio-technical field, 
gets to both how we communicate about uh, important issues like pandemics, misinformation, disinformation again, but also has to do with contact tracing, network analysis, and so forth. So um, across those three themes that I have just used as sort of sizes go-to themes on many different fronts, um, they all have a sort of pandemic relationship as well. And, and maybe I'll just add to that, that you know, also across all three of those themes, um, and something that has been front and center over the last 12 to 14 months has really been the willingness for folks to roll up their sleeves and partner across sectors and across traditional boundaries, whether they be geographic or um, wh whatever the boundary may look like, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things that size has also put a premium on over the last few years is trying to uh, work with the private sector so that we can jointly support research activities, so that we can bring to bear some of the data sets that we've been talking about this, uh, as part of this podcast, so that we can potentially bring to bear some of the additional infrastructure and cloud computing resources and assets and test beds potentially that the research community could leverage as it goes about conducting its research. So I think that that partnerships piece where you have meaningful collaborations that are grounded in uh, sort of expertise and, and, and other assets that you bring to the table, not just dollars, right? But these other intangibles that can be really valuable to help shape and drive some of the research that we uh, hope we are able to do. I think that's another important element that we look forward to continuing to build upon as we move forward. You know, you also asked a little bit about what does business as usual look like? You know, I think that's a, that's still an open question for us. That's an open question for all of society in many ways, right? We've been through um, a, a complete base shift over the course of the last twelve to fourteen months, and I think we're still coming to coming to grips with what does this look like once folks are vaccinated and once folks are able to. Um, spend time with one another in, in closer proximity than we have been able to over the last uh, year or so. Uh, I think that, you know, we have a, a committee that's been stood up, a task force that's been stood up across NSF to look at this very issue of what does the work, um, uh, what does the work life look like within the agency as we move forward? Um, do we have some sort of a hybrid model where folks are, uh, some folks are teleworking more of the time, other folks want to be in the building, they're in the building more of the time, you have folks who are doing a little bit of both as well. Uh, so do we have a hybrid model as we move forward? And also, how do we think about sort of uh, the, the bread and butter, if you will, the panel process that we have at the foundation? How do we ensure that uh, we're doing it in a safe way um, that still maximizes the intellectual rigor that comes with the panels? And at the same time, you know, one of the things that I always hear from panelists, or I used to always hear from panelists when I used to visit panels in person, was the, the opportunity that, that that sort of experience affords in terms of forging new collaborations, new connections, just by virtue of the discussions that are taking place, either during the panel or at the periphery of the panel, you know, at, during lunch breaks and coffee breaks and so forth. So how do we... Um, ensure that we don't lose that type of experience, while at the same time we recognize all of the benefits that do come from 
uh, more virtual panels, for instance, including some of the benefits to, uh, for example, um, the, the globe from an environmental standpoint as well. So uh, these are all questions that I think we are wrestling with as an agency, much as other organizations are wrestling with as well. And I, but I'm confident that, you know, just as we have, our workforce really has been the key to why we have managed to be successful over this last year. And so I'm confident that over this next year, as we feel our way, that workforce and that ingenuity that came from that workforce this past year will shine again as we think about how to move forward. Yeah, those serendipitous and collaborative conversations, the corridor conversations, as we call them, our team has definitely missed those synergies that come um, from just those random, I ran into you at the coffee machine and we started talking about this thing. We missed that for sure. Um, and that's an interesting, I'll be interested to see how that turns out for the whole research community, that lack of those conversations in general and the opportunities for those. Zoom is good, but it's not perfect. It has its limits. Yes. Um, also from what both of you said, I, I was really taken by the fact that this pandemic has, has really shown that there's not an us and a them. It's all us. Um, and when you talk about the socio-technical, especially it, it, as a non-scientist, a non-computer person, uh, I'm on the administrative side. So to me, I mean, maybe I have always known that there's this mix, this connection, but it seems like computers are here and people, sociology type stuff is here, but it's not, at least not anymore. It is one thing. It has never been that way, I think is safe to say, but at times our field has, I think, focus too much on trying to scope itself in ways that didn't account for the degree to which the socio-technical matters. Um, but, but I think our field has changed over decades to acknowledge that. And it's really about making sure that our curricula, that our funding programs and so forth, keep up with that evolution that has already been in place. And um, certainly when we talk to uh, students, undergraduate and graduate students and early career faculty, they already see a very different um, size than that of, say, 1986 when the directorate was founded. They already see the socio-technical as deeply central to what we do. Yeah, almost uh, the, the fact is that like science, people who have actually engaged in real science projects, uh, they would actually know that the transdisciplinary and team aspects uh, shouldn't be adjectives. When you say you're doing science, it, it naturally implies that you're doing it with a team. I mean, there are projects where you a, a single researcher or a smaller group can go at it, and it's a very deep uh, effort. But uh, most often, large science projects involve huge teams which are across disciplines, and being able to uh, bridge that through all these uh, programs, I think that that's that's pretty much the way to go. I just wanted to, uh, following up on the notion of teams, uh, perhaps, I wanted to bring education into our, our conversation a little bit um, on multiple fronts. So one front is that you can't look at the pandemic without seeing how it has 
dramatically reshaped the education landscape in many ways, right? So first of all, all the schools that pivoted to virtual for a long time, um, and, in, and in the process, changing things that were once hands-on learning to things that needed to be virtual. Uh, so whether that is a robotics lab or a human subjects project in a class, um, there have been some reshaped um, parts to project and hands-on experiences. Um, and, and so the pandemic has sort of reshaped education. And in addition, it's, you know, part of SIZE's mission is to uphold new forms of computing and information science and engineering education going forward, um, both to sort of rethink what curricula should look like for the future, and also to sort of ensure um, that we're training a, a broad and inclusive workforce for the future. And so those are key parts of SIZE's mission. They're key parts of what we focus on each day. Um, we have a range of programs that address that. And I think um, coming out of the pandemic, I think redoubling our efforts around sort of acknowledging the socio-technical aspects of our field, building that into our curricula will be important. Thinking about the ethical aspects of what we do, building that into our curricula will be important. We, we spoke about data privacy issues um, that's going to be sort of a key thing, and it's important for, for folks to learn about that through classes in a very systemic and holistic way. Um, so there's a range of ways in which the education space aligns with um, where we are right now in terms of coming, hopefully coming out of the pandemic and thinking about what's next. And part of this is continuing down trajectories that SIAS has always sought to be a leader in, um, but also accounting for how um, our pivot to virtual over the past year may have reshaped some of our thinking, uh, reshaped who's engaging in sort of novel education techniques going forward. No, I was just going to bring up one point. I know it's time, but you raise a very, very interesting and intriguing possibility, Margaret, which is the use of technology that has been developed and the ideas we've gotten through this pandemic for continuing education and you know, workforce retraining. Because I think that it's a very important topic for all of us as you know things people get displaced from the normal kinds of work but i think the technology is starting to come around and we've shown that it works at least where people can maybe take classes in the evening from home you know mothers with small children can stay at home and still participate and learn maybe take a course or two so that they are better prepared for taking up a, a job in the cybersecurity world i think it provides a really wonderful opportunity so thanks for bringing it up you know i think one of the things that we also have to recognize too is the importance of access to uh, that coursework virtually right and it's not equitable across the country today there are a lot of folks for example who simply don't have the high-speed connectivity right. that you need in order to be able to do the kinds of virtual learning that um, you just described, Madhav, and that we've seen elementary schoolers all across this country be forced to do over the course of the last year at times. And so actually that that's very germane to one of the other projects that I think Margaret and I are really proud of uh, having been able to support over the course of the last six months or so, something called Project Overcome, uh, which is really an effort to pilot in a few communities across the country, 
new technical approaches to being able to deploy broadband connections for users to be able to plug into um, at relatively low cost, right? And can we take some of the recent research that NSF has supported and can we put it into can we can we put it into context and, and prototype it in various communities that are that have been either underserved or unserved, entirely unserved by broadband connections. Uh, and so we actually funded uh, US Ignite Incorporated uh, nonprofit based in DC that's done a lot of work in uh, broadband connections and smart cities, smart communities types applications over the last decade. We funded them to do a competition and ultimately they in turn funded uh, six to seven communities. One of those communities was supported by Schmidt Futures, the philanthropic uh, organization for Eric uh, uh, Schmidt and family, uh, to really be able to test out these approaches. But then also coming back to something Margaret said earlier, understanding the socio technical aspects of these approaches as well. What motivates right. people to want to engage? Which of these approaches make it more easy or, or, or less easy for folks to be able to uh, plug into broadband connectivity? And how do we learn from that so that we can take away lessons that allow us to develop sort of a best practices catalog, develop a path forward such that we can start to scale these approaches and finally, we hope, finally really address the digital divide as it's often referred to that we see across the country. I think there's been no time like this past year that has illustrated the um, sort of negative consequences of that digital divide on access to data and information about the pandemic, where you can go for testing, where you can go for vaccines, let alone access to education for some of uh, today's youth and continuing education aspects too. So I think that's another project that we're excited about and that is very germane to this conversation as well. Excellent point, excellent. That's wonderful actually. And on that extremely positive note, um, I think that might be a good place to, to end. That is so hopeful, it's such an important project. All of this is critical, so important, and I love that we're talking about it. So thank you so much, Margaret Irwin. Thank you for joining us. This has really been fabulous. Thank you so much, it was fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. That's it for this edition of Science Before the Storm. For more information on this virtual organization, go to prepare-vo.org. This podcast is supported by the National Science Foundation. Please like and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe and stay prepared.